our wonderful music tonight, and uh, Wesley, that was wonderful. Thank you for that. I think if Wes just sticks at it, he'll be a good singer one day. <laughs> it takes time. It takes time. You've got to be patient, but I, I do think you'll get there. Uh, I love to see people use their talents for the Lord, and we've seen that, we've seen that all week long. We've seen it all week long. Uh, the teenagers selling the coffee and uh, church members, just everywhere you turn. Can I help you? What do you need? Um, it's been a blessing. And I, I've long uh, said that a church many times will reflect the attitude of the pulpit. And I think that's true at River City. I think it's true that uh, this church reflects the attitude. Or maybe it's the pastor that reflects your attitude. But either way, you're good for each other. You're good for each other. So thank you, River City, and all of your uh, hospitality has been unbelievable. Uh, Aaron and your team, I don't know where Aaron is tonight, super job. I know you've done a lot of work for this conference and uh, everything, the music, the organization, uh, all of it has been just A+. plus. So thank you for all that you've done. And then to all my pastor friends and ministry leaders that have come from really all around the country. I remember when Brian and, and I and, and Carrie first, first were talking about this conference. I remember you said, yeah, I think we'll have like 15 or 20 people there, uh, but we'll have a good time. We'll kind of round table it. And uh, thank you for uh, exceeding uh, our wildest expectations about what this conference might be, what it could be. And honestly, uh, many times at a conference like this, the, the best thing that happens is what happens in a lobby, what happens in a hotel lobby, what happens at a restaurant or a coffee shop. As you're developing relationships and speaking words of encouragement into each other's lives. And so I know that's happening. Everywhere I turn, it seems like everyone's in a deep conversation. And that's a good thing. So thank you for your friendship to me and to each other. Most of all, your, your love for the Lord. That's what brings us together, our love for the Lord. And so thank you for that. First Corinthians. Oh, let me just say one, one more thing. But wasn't H.B. Charles a delight? <laughs> you know, preachers never really totally listen to a message. Now, I'm fully aware of that. Preachers are, they're, they're half listening, they're half watching, half analyzing, Half stealing, half judging. <laughs> I know that my math is wrong, but I think my statement is 100% accurate. And I was doing all of that last night with H.B. Charles. I was doing all of that. Just, just gleaning masterfully how he walked us through the text. How he illustrated appropriately. Uh, even how his homiletics matched his hermeneutics. Just all of it. It, it clearly... God has gifted him, but clearly he walks with God. Yeah. And those are two different things. Right. We're going to read a book tonight uh, of a church that was highly gifted. Well, you could go to that church and be wowed by the music. You could go to the church of Corinth and be wowed by the preaching. Not just one preacher, successive preachers. You could be wowed by them. But giftedness is not godliness. There's a big difference. And I'm glad that at River City, yes, there's giftedness, but there's something behind it. 
Look at what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and keep your Bible open or your tablet open or your phone open or your scroll open or whatever you have. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 1. And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, i.e., in the way that I wished I could have spoken unto you. But as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ, I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto ye were not able to bear it, neither yet now are ye able, for ye are yet carnal. For whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal? And walk as men. For while one saith, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are ye not carnal? Who then is Paul? And who is Apollos? But ministers by whom ye believed, even as the Lord gave to every man. Watch verse 6. I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then, neither is he that planteth anything. Neither is he that watereth, but, but God that giveth the increase. Now, he that planteth and he that watereth are one. And every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's Husbandry, God's field. Ye are God's building. I want to speak uh, tonight for a few minutes on the topic, uh, the danger of celebrity pastors. The danger of celebrity pastors. Lord, I, I pray that you'd bless the message tonight. I sure do need your help. Lord, I've prepared and I have some things written down to say, but Lord, I just want to give this, this time to you and ask that you would guide and direct my, my thoughts and my words. We pray, Lord, that we would sense a real, have a real sense of your presence in this room tonight. I pray that at strategic moments throughout the, the service, you would just tap us on the shoulder. Remind us that you're here. Remind us that the words are, are your words. The message is yours. And oh God, tonight I pray that you would work in the places that I certainly cannot work. I pray that even now you would help us to have a submissive and open and pliable heart. I pray that our collective prayer would be, speak, O Lord. I pray that our attitude would be one of, of immediate change. If there would be anything that you would highlight to our lives that would be something that would not honor you. And O God, tonight, I pray that every single one of us would receive a blessing. The blessing of having heard and the blessing of having been 
inspired by the very word of God. Bless us tonight, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen. We talk about celebrity pastors, and I'm sure that you already have a an image in your mind, maybe you're picturing somebody in a white suit with really weird hair that can allegedly heal people. Uh, maybe that's your idea of a celebrity pastor. Maybe you're picturing some a person on the television set that's uh, trying to raise money for some project. And if you just send in your seed gift of 1995, God's going to answer your prayers. And what I always want to say to that televangelist is, how about you send me the 1995 and God can answer your prayer. It never works that way. Maybe you're picturing somebody that lives in a, a, a mansion or somebody that drives some car that you could never afford or wears clothes or goes on vacations that you think are uh, too opulent for somebody of the cloth. Celebrity pastors. I suppose we all have a, a different definition of what a celebrity pastor might be or what the definition might be. But uh, I think one thing about which we can all agree tonight is that uh, there's no place in the Bible or in Christian ministry for what quote-unquote celebrity pastors. Right. Now there was a time when I was a celebrity dad. I can promise you that there was a time. Now, my oldest son is here uh, tonight, and certainly he can testify to this. There was a time in my child rearing when I was larger than life. And I was a celebrity dad. For instance, I was a better golfer uh, back in the day than Tiger Woods. My, my son Caleb came to me one day in the late 90s. He was just a little boy, maybe five or six years of age. And he said, Dad, Tiger Woods is the best golfer in the world. I said, no, he's not. And, you know, a five-year-old just believes everything dad says. And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, I'm better than Tiger Woods. He said, you are? I said, I'm older. He thought, oh, yeah. Because remember when you were a kid, whoever's older is better. I mean, the second grader can beat up the kindergartner. And he just took that and he went away and told all his friends, my dad is a better golfer than Tiger Woods. What did you do? I let him, I let him say it. Just a child. It's not going to harm anything. <laughs> we would drive to school the same way every day. I'd drive the kids to school, and every day we would pass by this one park in New Kensington, uh, Pennsylvania, called Memorial Park. And the reason it was named Memorial Park is because there were memorials there to various wars. And one of the memorials in that park was actually uh, an aircraft uh, from the Vietnam War, uh, a fighter jet aircraft in that park. We'd go by that park every day, and, and uh, jo my son Joshua looked at it and said, yeah, I love that. I love that fighter jet. Dad, I said, I know. I used to fly that jet. He said, really? I said, oh, yes, I flew that back in the war. And I'm thinking, yo, who could possibly believe that? <laughs> okay, let me tell you who believes that. Your nine-year-old son <laughs> who's taught to trust and respect his dad. So he believed that. I didn't correct him. I didn't feel like it was necessary. He told every one of his friends in his third grade class that his dad used that fighter jet. And they went home and told their parents. So that Sunday at church, nobody believed my preaching. <laughs> you know, being a celebrity pastor is not being a pastor that everybody knows. Being a celebrity pastor is not being a pastor that gets invited to all the places to preach or even has nice stuff. Being a celebrity pastor is a mindset where we believe things about ourselves that aren't true. 
We accept adulation that does not belong to us. And that can happen in a church of 50 just as quickly as it can happen in a church of 500 or 5,000. Because it's not what you have, it's who you are or who you perceive to be. Are you a celebrity pastor or are you a simple servant? That's the point that the Apostle Paul is making in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Are you a celebrity pastor in your own mind? In your own mind? Or are you a simple servant? It's interesting when the Apostle Paul talks about what he is in actuality. The way that he views himself. He talks about the fact that, hey, I, I'm just a... And, and Chris, uh, Chris said it today in the, in the uh, panel discussion. He said, I'm just a minister. I'm just a table waiter is what that means. I just wait tables. That's what I am. Hey, if you want to know what I am, let me tell you what I am. I'm a farmer. That's what I am. And not just a farmer, I'm a migrant worker. I, I don't, this isn't even my field. I just come work here and then I move on to another field. I'm just a migrant worker that comes in and plants crops. I don't even stay around for the watering part. I don't even stay around to, to, to uh, uh, pick the fruit off uh, whatever the crop is. I, I just come in and plant stuff. I'm a table waiter. I'm a farmer. I'm a, I'm a builder. That's what I am. I'm a construction worker. I do foundation work. I do the below the ground work that nobody sees. And they backfill it with dirt one day. No one even sees it. But I'm telling you, that's the work that I do. I'm a table waiter. I'm a farmer. I'm a builder. I'm not a celebrity pastor, even though you think I am. Even though there's a subset of this church that tells me that I am. and tells me that I'm all that and a bag of chips. I don't believe it. I don't believe what people say on this side. And I don't believe what people say on that side. I have a healthy and accurate view of who I am. Let me tell you guys, we need to culture a healthy and accurate view of who we are as the ministers of Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, I want to show you four views that you and I ought to have found right here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Four views that we need to get right. Paul had an accurate view about four things that I think you and I need to share if we're going to be effective ministers for Jesus Christ. I want you to see them with me. First of all, I want you to see that the Apostle Paul had an accurate view of his people. He had an accurate view of his people. He knew the people to whom he was ministering. And, and well, he should. Because nobody knew the Corinthians like the Apostle Paul. After all, he had been the one that had started that church. Remember the second missionary journey of the Apostle Paul? I'm not saying that you were there, although some of you, I, I have my suspicions. Uh, the Apostle Paul was on his second missionary journey, making his way around the rim of the Aegean Sea. He had started in Philippi. Remember the Macedonian call? He had gone to Philippi. And there he had led Lydia to Christ and presumably her family and started a church in her house. And there he had been put in prison. And there the Philippian jailer had been saved and, and the jailer's family and others. And the Apostle Paul had established a beachhead there on the European continent in Philippi. And then he walked down the road. He left. He, he left Luke there. If you study the pronouns of the book of Acts, you find out that uh, Paul and, and Timothy and, and Silas, they made their way from Philippi. Luke stayed there probably to disciple and to help and to nurture and to uh, be the interim pastor, if you will. But uh, Paul and Silas and Timotheus, they made their way down the Via Egnatia, the, the I-95 of the day. 
And they made their way through towns like Amphipolis and, and Apollonia. And they came uh, to a place called Thessalonica, which happened to be the chief city of Macedonia. Why? Because the Apostle Paul operated by a, uh, by a modus operandi. He had a ministry philosophy by which he lived. And that is, I want to preach the gospel to people that have never heard the gospel before. Now, that's not my ministry philosophy. I build on other people's foundations. I, I, I went to Faith Baptist Church in Fredericksburg. It's not a church that I started. And so therein I'm building upon another man's foundation. But the Apostle Paul, he was truly an apostle. He truly was an evangelist in that sense. And that he wanted to go places that no church existed. So he, he went to Thessalonica. He went to the Jew first, another ministry philosophy. And he went to a hub city because he was hoping that from that hub city there'd be spokes of churches all over the place. Paul went to Thessalonica. You know what happen. Acts chapter 17, he was there for three Sabbath days. Uh, he was seeing some results among especially the women and some of the chief women of the city. The Jews uh, were especially antagonistic uh, toward Paul and eventually a riot ensued and Paul was kicked out of town. By the hair of his chinny chin chin he got out, remember? And they whisked him away to a place called Berea, a place down the road, not a large place and probably not a place that Paul would have chosen. Because that was not within Paul's stated philosophy. But sometimes God does things in your life that are outside of your control. Circumstances outside of your control that you never would have scripted for your life. But God uses them to put you in places and among people that you never would have chosen. And so Paul went to Berea, and there the Bereans heard the scriptures, and they were more noble than they of Thessalonica, because they didn't just believe it at face value, but they wanted to check out what Paul, his preaching at face value, but they checked it out according to the scriptures. That's good. And so Paul started a church there. So now we've got Philippi, and we've got Thessalonica, and we've got Berea. He went down to Athens and had negligible effect in Athens, but he preached the gospel to that pagan city. And then he moved on to Corinth by himself. All by himself, undersupported, bivocational, no, no team. Timothy and Silas had joined him lately at Athens, but Paul was so concerned about the church up in Thessalonica that they had to leave so abruptly that he sent uh, Timothy and Silas back up to Thessalonica to find out how they're doing. Hey, let me know how they're doing. Paul went down to Corinth and there he met Priscilla and Aquila, started living with them. Started working with them. Were they saved already? Maybe. Maybe not. Either way, there was a commonality vocationally. There was a, a commonality ethnically. And the Apostle Paul just stayed there and began to minister. Began to preach to the Jew first. And eventually left the synagogue. And had some similar situations to that at Thessalonica. But for 18 long months, man, he did the heavy lifting of church planning. And all of you men that have been engaged and women that have been engaged in church planning, you know exactly what I'm talking about. The sleepless nights and, and to all of the various aspects of church. Paul did all of it. He loved these people. He loved them so much that he called them his children. He loved them so much. He said, I'm like your father. I've had this affection for you. But the time came that the apostle Paul had to leave. And so leave he did. He took Priscilla and Aquila, these whom he had discipled, and they left Corinth and they went across the Aegean to a place called Ephesus. And there the Apostle Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. You've got a work to do here. They bought a house. No doubt they were people of means. And wherever they went, they started a church. And that's a great study, Priscilla and Aquila. And Paul left and went back to his sending church, Antioch of Syria. Went down to Jerusalem for a feast. 
only to come back later. But when he comes back, in the meantime, Priscilla and Aquila, they've met a man by the name of Apollos. And Apollos, man, this guy can preach. You talk about a gifted preacher. You talk about an orator. You talk about somebody that has influence. Boy, Apollos, he's the man. Only problem is he has some gaps in his theology. Uh, he only is aware of the ministry of John the Baptist. And while he believes in a coming Messiah and the Lamb of God, he doesn't know much about the actual ministry of Jesus Christ and certainly not the finished work upon the cross. And so uh, uh, Priscilla and Aquila are helping him theologically and, and helping shore up his theology. And now uh, Apollos, he's got all the zeal and he's got all the talent and he has all the knowledge. And he goes to Corinth. Now what's amazing is when Apollos gets to Corinth, there are some people in Corinth that are listening to him that didn't listen to Paul. Do you know that people are fickle? You say, well, it should just be enough that we preach the word of God. I don't care if somebody uh, preaches it well. As long as they just preach it, they can get up there and just read it. If it's the word of God, I love it. Oh, yeah, hogwash. <laughs> we're not that spiritual. And the Corinthians certainly were not. They, they love, some of them really loved it, but that's the way it ought to be preached. That's the way it ought to be said, and especially the Jews. But the Jews loved Apollos. Matter of fact, the Bible says that Apollos mightily convinced the Jews. You know what's interesting about that? The Apostle Paul had a negligible influence among the Jews at Corinth. Couldn't get, loved them, had a heart for them, prayed for them, wished he could be a curse from Christ for them. I mean, man, you talk about a passion for the Jews. He had it, but he couldn't reach them. But you know what Paul did? Paul reached somebody who reached somebody who reached the Jews. That's the way that works. Paul reached Priscilla and Aquila who reached Apollos who reached the Jews that Paul originally wanted to reach. Hey, God is the Lord of the harvest. So Paul comes back to Ephesus. He's hearing all about this. Matter of fact, he sends a letter to the church at Corinth that's not even in the Bible. It's a letter referred to in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 9 in which he said, I've heard some really disturbing things about the church. They're, they're acting more like the Corinth that's around them than they are the Christ that's within them. The church at Corinth, they're really acting in an ungodly way. And they're, they're, they're acting in an immoral way. They're, they're putting up with immorality in the church. There's factionalism everywhere. Uh, the Jew and the Gentile in the church can't get along. The weaker brother, the older brother, uh, the, the weaker brother, the, uh, the, the, the stronger brother, the Jew, the Gentile, uh, the rich and the poor, they separate themselves at the agape feast. You've got all kinds of factionalism when it comes to this person baptized me, that person baptized me. They've got their favorite preacher. I mean, they are divided in which way. Paul hears a message from a faithful family, the household of Chloe. They said, Paul, this is what's going on. Paul shakes his head. An official delegation comes from Corinth. A, a delegation, Fortunatus and Achaicus and, and Estephanus, they come from a Corinth. They said, Paul, we're here to represent the church and we're telling you things are bad. Things are bad. I mean, it's really rocky and uh, something has to be done. So what does Paul do? Paul takes out his pen and he begins to write them. And what he begins to write them is what we're reading tonight, a portion. And when he writes them, he says to them, listen, you're right, you're stuck. You're stuck where you've always been. He says there's really just three categories of people when it comes to all human beings. There, there are spiritual people. We know who they are. Spiritual people are they who have been born of the Spirit. That's what it means to be spiritual. If you have been saved, you are 
technically and positionally a spiritual person. Why? Because you have the quickened who are dead in trespasses and in sins. Your spirit has been quickened. Your spirit has been made alive. And now you are a spiritual person positionally. But watch this. Just because you're spiritual positionally does not mean that you're spiritual practically. Two totally different uh, categories. And so a spiritual man is one who is spiritual positionally, but one who is walking in the spirit. The Bible says, uh, and walk in the spirit that ye don't fulfill the lust of the flesh. If we live in the spirit, Paul said in Galatians 5, let us also walk in the spirit. In other words, it's possible to be alive in the spirit, to live in the spirit, but not to walk in the spirit. It's possible to be saved and not act like it. It's possible to be saved and not act like it. So Paul said, there are really three groups of people. There's a spiritual person. That's the ideal, a person who's saved and acts like it. He, he behaves like who he is, not like who he was. He embraces his identity in Christ and lives like it through the empowerment of God's Holy Spirit. That's spirituality. Okay? Or there's a natural man. You know this. The natural man is the person that is born of this world, but not born from above. The natural man, the fleshly man, or the man that has not been saved. So there's a spiritual man. The natural man received not the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them. They are spiritually discerned. But the spiritual man, he understandeth all things, right? And yet no man understands him. People don't really get your priorities. They don't really get your lifestyle. They don't really get your attitude. They don't really get your beliefs. Why? Because uh, the natural man can't understand the spirit, things that, that are of the Spirit. So there's a spiritual man. There's a natural man. And you would think that that dichotomy would represent all people. Either you're saved or you're unsaved, right? That makes sense. Either you're saved or you're unsaved, and certainly that's true. But Paul introduces a third category. And the third category he introduces is that of carnality. The carnal man is a spiritual man who acts like the natural man. That's carnality. Carnality is when we're saved, we know the Lord. We've been passed from death into life, but we're acting more like the Corinth around us. We're taking our cues and our clues from the Corinth around us and not from the Christ and the Spirit of Christ who is within us. And so the Apostle Paul says to his people, to his audience, to his children in the faith, look at it, verse 1. I, I, I could not speak unto you as unto spiritual. That was my desire. But as unto carnal. I spoke to you as carnal. Verse 3, you're yet carnal. And what does carnality entail? Oh, I know what carnality entails. Matter of fact, I, I meant to do this tonight. I meant not to turn to a passage of Scripture. I meant just to say, hey, give me an idea. What is, what's the first word that comes to your mind when I say carnal? I, I guarantee you if I had not read this passage, you would not say envy. Isn't it amazing that what we typically think of as carnal, and I'm not saying that immorality or immodesty or the, the typical things that we hear are not elements of carnality, but that's not what the Bible says. What the Bible says is the carnality of the Corinthians showed up in their envy. You know the word envy means? Zelos is the word. It's a strong desire to have something you don't have. You know what the Corinthians want? They want a status. They want to be somebody. They want stuff. 
Because in Corinth, the more stuff you had, the more important you were. The more athletic you were, the more important you were. The better orator you were, the more important you were. The more arguments you could win. That was what was valued in Corinth. So what did they do? They imported all the values of Corinth into the local church and said, okay, so in church, if I win, I'm more valuable. If I, I can win an argument, if I can speak better, I'm more, if I have more stuff, I'm more valuable. If I have higher status, I'm more valuable. They took all the competition of the world around them and imported it into the church that they were attending. I wonder, my friends, if that's not true of our churches. Competitive and gripey and envious and suspicious and passive-aggressive. And in America, where we have the luxury of having different kinds of churches. And in America, when we have the luxury of having different translations, and no other language has these luxuries, we get to argue about these things. We get to argue, no, thou, no, you, thou, you, right? We get to argue. No, 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 what that, that, what that, no, that was written in 1952, 1852, wrong! We get to argue. We get to be Baskin Robbins. That's American Christianity. We get to have our own flavor and then emphasize our own flavor. Because everyone knows that strawberry is better than chocolate. Everyone knows that, right? Oh, no, we already have contention. <laughs> While half the world hasn't even tasted ice cream. We argue about our flavor. That was the church at Corinth. And that envy, that's the seed. And that envy produced strife. And that strife produced division. And then they justified their factions. They justified that our division, our faction, our tribe is better than your tribe. Because we've got Paul. If he can't do it, nobody can. They got their pom-poms out and give us a P and give us an A. And man, they loved it. Yeah. I'll tell you what, Paul, he goes deep. He's Mr. Theologian. I'll tell you, he can write better than anybody. Oh yeah, but he can't preach his way out of a paper bag. He's our no, no, Cephas. He was there with Jesus. Paul wasn't there. He was killing Christians. Apollos, he was off in Egypt somewhere. We're a Peter. And I don't know what all the invented rationale was, but they became tribal. And God says, you are carnal. And Paul knew that about his people. Now, there's one way for a leader to react to carnality, and that's to say, I'm out of this church. I disengage from these people. You bunch of babies. That's what they were, by the way, babies. And, and babies are cute. And they're cuter when they're grandbabies. Because there's no diaper changes. There's no get up in the middle of the nights. There's go home, right? They're cute. I mean, when our kids were, 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 were one and two years old and they said, up, 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 love you, well, that was cute, okay? But when they're speaking baby talk, when they're seven, it's not cute. Me want chocolate milk, talk like a seven-year-old. 
In other words, act like who you are, not like what you, what you were. Right. Right? right? And so what's Paul? Paul's engaged with people that he knows. He knows the state of his flock. I wonder, tonight, do you know the state of your flock and are you willing to stay engaged with their spiritual needs even though you know the state of your flock? Now Paul said, I want to preach this, I can't preach this. I wish we were here, but we're not. And some of you are here tonight thinking, man, I wish our church were here. I wish our people could handle this. I, I wish we were at this level. Listen, but you're not. But you're not. Because you're not dealing with widgets, you're dealing with people. And people sometimes have a free will. Matter of fact, they always do. And so we've got to deal with them right where they are and have an accurate view of their spiritual condition. That's exactly what Paul had in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Watch this, number two. Not only did he have an accurate view of his people, but number two, he had, he had an accurate view of, uh, of his preaching. He understood the purpose. Watch how the Apostle Paul dealt with the people whom he knew so well. Verse number one. I, brethren, I could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. I spoke to you at your level. I had an accurate view of where you were spiritually, and so I met you at your point of need. Look at verse number two. I have fed you with milk. Now, could Paul have waxed eloquent about theology? Sure. Nobody could have done better. But Paul didn't use his pulpit to show what he knew. He used his pulpit to meet the needs of the people in front of him. So he even told us, he goes, I'd rather preach this. If he wrote Hebrews, he said, man, you ought to be here by now, but I'm still preaching these messages. But he was willing to preach what they could handle. You don't give a baby a steak, right? You want to be able to feed steak, but they can't handle it. They don't have teeth yet. They don't have a digestive system. And if you were to give someone steak, of course you would give them medium steak. You would not give them well done steak because that's the waste of a steak. You would not give them medium rare steak because we are not carnivores, carnivores on the Serengeti. Okay? You would give them a medium steak. You would give them mashed potatoes. You would give them green beans for decorative purposes only. And then you would give them apple pie a la mode. And you get to choose the flavor. Okay? That's what you would do. But you can't do that. I have fed you with milk. Watch this. Not with me. For hitherto you were not able to bear it. Neither yet now are you able. What a mouthful. What a mouthful the Apostle Paul does. He just told us four things about his preaching. He just told us four things at least about his preaching. Number one, he said, hey, my preaching is nutritious. I have fed you with milk. I have, uh, the elders which are among you, I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Uh, feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight. God's, God's command to you preachers is feed your people. Feed them. Give them a steady diet of the word of God. Give them what God said. They don't need you, they need him. They don't need your words, they need his words. And so Paul said, I have fed you. Is that your testimony in your local church? Are you feeding your people? Sometimes we get a little bit upset when people say, well, I, I, I left so-and-so church because I, I just wasn't getting fed. No, you just had a bad attitude. No, sometimes they just weren't getting fed. Have you ever gone to a restaurant with bad food? 
You don't keep on going back. I don't care how nice the dining room was. I don't care how, how, how kind uh, the, the table waiters were. I don't care how convenient it was. I don't care how uh, well-priced the food was. If the food stinks, you don't go back. Right? And by the way, the converse is also true. I could take you to a little place called the Villa in Cadogan, uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, I, you can't find it twice. It's out in the middle of nowhere. It's by some dirty little river town. You go there. It's dirty. It's a, the parking lot's jam-packed. You go in. You're sitting elbow to elbow with people. The tables are, look like they're from 1947. Why would you go back? It's got the best lasagna on earth. And everyone tells their friends, you got to go to the Villa in Cadogan. I'm just saying, when you feed people, good things happen. It was a nutritious meal. But not only was it a nutritious meal, it was a digestible meal. Feed your people with what they can handle. You say, does that mean I shouldn't preach tech verse by verse and chapter by chapter? No. Uh, you can't preach verse by verse and chapter by chapter, but you're going to have to adjust it to their level of understanding. You're going to have to adjust it to their level. You do that with children all the time. You do junior church, you don't get up and uh, preach Leviticus chapter 7 and say, let's talk about the sevenfold ramifications of the Abraham covenant as it pertains to the Mosaic law. You've lost them. Okay? You talk about, let's talk about Samuel listening to the voice of God. Samuel. Samuel. I can see now Jeff Adams is listening. (laughs) I've lost him, but man, he is right on time. Man, I got there. It took me a while to get down that far, but you're with me. That is so good. Find the level and stay there. It was a nutritious meal. It was a digestible meal. It was a consistent meal. And Paul didn't give up. Week by week, letter by letter, he stayed after it. Hey, you couldn't bear it. I fed you with milk. I I wish we were at meat level, but we're not there. Uh, Hitherto, neither can you bear it now, but I'm still talking. I'm still preaching. I'm still writing. I'm still praying. I'm still in. I'm not giving up. When are they going to get it? I don't know. When did you get it? Aren't you glad that God was patient with your stubborn heart? Just... Give them the word of God. Give them the word of God. The word of God has intrinsic value. The word of God has inherent value. Give it, give it, give it, give it. One day it'll seek in. And if not, you'll be the better for giving it. Nutritious, digestible, consistent. But I would say lastly, and this is going to seem a little bit counterintuitive to what the first three I just gave you. It was a nutritious diet, a digestible diet, a consistent diet. But ultimately it was an insufficient diet. And Paul knew that this, they needed more. Uh, Paul knew that they should be beyond this. Paul knew that milk was uh, just entry level. He knew that, okay? But he gave them what they could handle. Remember when my biological dad was dying of cancer. 1997. And he was just uh, emaciated. Uh, pancreatic cancer. And he was... Uh, no doubt going to die, and he did die, by the way. I remember visiting him for the last time I ever saw him alive. It was about two months before he died, and I spoke with the doctor uh, in the hallway. The doctor said, I said, what can I do to help? He said, well, you know, just be an encouragement. And he said, and try to get him to eat something. 
he honestly needs to eat something. He wouldn't eat anything. So here's this, here's this dad that left our family when I was like three for another woman who had been out of my life his whole life. And here are his two sons, Stephen and Kurt. And here I am with a spoon and applesauce. Dad, Dad, can you just take one bite? Dad, can you take one bite? Come on, Dad. Come on, Dad, two more bites. I know, two more bites. Listen, I knew he was dying, but I knew I had to do something. Sometimes in our ministry, that's where we're at. We look at people, and we look at the decisions they're making, and we look at the lives they're living, and we're saying, there's no hope. But, you know, maybe, maybe, there'll, be a, uh, maybe there'll be a breakthrough next week, and maybe an a, a immunotherapy will come the week after. Maybe there's going to be some breakthrough with chemotherapy four weeks from now. But for now, can you take one more bite? Hey, for now, hey, open your, two more bites, please. That was Paul. A nutritious, a digestible, consistent, but ultimately an insufficient diet. He knew his people. He knew, the, he knew what they needed. And what they needed was the faithful preaching of the word of God. Watch this, number three. Not only did he have an accurate view of his people and then an accurate view of his preaching, but notice he had an accurate view of his, of his position. I, I love it. Verse number five, don't miss it. An accurate view of his position. He says, uh, who then is Paul? I think you'll find it interesting that the pronoun who in verse number five is neuter. Okay, that doesn't mean that Paul was struggling with his gender identity. <laughs> it simply means that Paul was not speaking of him as an individual person. He's speaking about his position. You know, who, who is your Paul? Who, who is the minister? That's what he's saying. Well, what's this position? Who then is Paul? Who, who then is Apollos? He says, but ministers, verse number uh, seven, uh, but, I'm sorry, verse number five, but ministers by whom you believed even as the Lord gave, the Lord gave, the Lord gave to every, uh, to every man. And so what's he saying? He's saying, hey, number one, number one, let me tell you who I am. I'm a minister. Now, I know that we've even ennobled that We've even ennobled that. Oh, who are you? I'm a minister. Sometimes I'll go to the hospital to make a hospital call and they'll say, oh, the minister. He's the minister. I'm part of the ministerial society, the ministerial group. We've almost ennobled the term because such is the pride of man. We always want to make ourselves more than what we are. But the word minister is the, the, the common word diakonos, and you know that. And the word diakonos means a, a table waiter. A, a table waiter. What a perfect illustration. The food is not ours. The preparation of the food is not ours. You know what we do? We walk from there to there. Because that's God's plan. Now, the chef could walk out and serve the food and do a better job than you and I could. I could answer more questions. But for some reason, in God's sovereign plan, he has chosen people to help people. That's what he's done. 
So God has chosen you and God has chosen me to take the plate from the kitchen to the table. So take the plate from the kitchen to the table. And don't stop at the buffet and put your own food on it. Take the plate that the chef prepared from the kitchen to the table and put it there. And if you want to be a really good waiter, give him a refill. Before he asks, if you want a tip from me, that's not true. I did some reading about table waiters in Greek society. You'll find this interesting. In Greek society, the table waiter would enter a room and the people would be reclining, not sitting at a table like you and I sit at a table, but sitting kind of like on a half couch, propped up. And uh, they would be raised up on platforms and the table waiter would enter the room and the people that were sitting on the couches would be at eye level. They're sitting up here and here's a, a little platform. You put the food by their feet. You put the food by their feet. And uh, boy, that gives you a different picture of a table waiter. And there were two servants at a rich house for every one person. One servant's job was to wipe the spit off the mouth. The other person's job was to clean the vomit off the floor. Because it would be common in those days to eat so much and want to eat more, meals could last four hours that one would purge himself so he could eat more food. And the table waiter would wipe the mouth and clean the vomit. We're not nearly as highfalutin as we think we are. That's not a celebrity pastor job. We're table waiters. We serve people and we deal with their filth. And we are privileged to do so. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I think if I were Paul back in those days, I would say, hey, you're elevating Apollos a little bit more highly than he ought to be elevated. It's always easy to point at the other celebrity pastor. But did it ever occur to you that Paul put the kabash on people that were elevating him? I tell you what, sometimes our greatest sin is not that we invited the praise, it's that we don't deflect it. And over time, we start to believe it. Now, if you ever want to get a healthy dose of whether or not the praise is true or not, just repeat it to your wife and ask if it's true. <laughs> she'll tell you, and she'll be accurate. Table waiter. I'm a table waiter. But not only do you say I'm a table waiter, let me give you one, one last one. There's actually three, but I'll just give you two for tonight. Watch what the Bible says in verse number six. I'm a table waiter. That's verse number five. Verse number six, I planted. That's the language of, of, of agriculture. I, I planted. Apollos watered. That, that's the language of agriculture. God gave the increase. That, that's the language of agriculture. Uh, Paul loved to use the language of agriculture. You know what's interesting? Paul was not a farmer. And yet he used the illustration. And I think that's important for us to understand as preachers that we need to find ways, effective ways by which to communicate with our people in ways that they'll understand. And so Paul used the illustration. Paul used the illustration of childbearing. And I'm pretty sure he never bore a child. I travail in birth again until be Christ be formed in you. It's easy for a guy to talk about labor pain, right? 
But that's inspired, ladies, so he talked about it. What's the point? The point is Paul wants his people desperately to understand who ministers are, who we are. And I know that you factionalize and you're saying you're of Paul and you're of Cephas and you're of Apollos and this group over here, you're so highly spiritual, you don't need any human leader, you're of Christ. They were all wrong. They were all wrong. What the Apostle Paul was simply saying is, no, I'm a table waiter, I'm just a farmer, and I don't even know the whole farming process. Now Jesus said in Matthew 9, he said, pray therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth what? That's interesting. That he'll send forth what? Laborers. He didn't say that he'll send forth planters. He didn't say he'd send forth the waterers. He didn't say, pray that the Lord would send forth. See, we're specialists. But the Lord just kind of looked at it and said, no, I just need people to work. And I'll tell you what to do. And I'll tell you uh, what position you have. And it really didn't make a difference because I view you all the same. Whether you water, whether you plant, whether you reap, whatever you do. If you're doing it for me, you're my labor. I just need people to work. I'll direct you. Just work. Remember when Jesus went through Samaria? He had seen a great... Result in Judea for four months. Matter of fact, so great was their result that the uh, disciples of John came to the disciples of Jesus and they kind of got mad. Like, uh, they're back to, went back to John and said, uh, uh, boss, they're, they're baptizing more than we are. That sounds, you know, pretty recent to me. And remember what John said? John, John that's that way, that's the way it ought to be. He must, what? Increase, I must, what? decrease. I'm just the friend of the bridegroom. He's the bridegroom. This is the way it ought to be. And so they're seeing great success. Well, now they're going back up to Galilee. Jesus and the six. Peter, Andrew, James, John, Philip, and Nathaniel. So they go through Samaria. I was just there. I just was standing on Mount Gerizim uh, with some, some of my friends here just, just, just a couple weeks ago, looking down at Shechem, looking down at Jacob's well. And there sat Jesus outside of Sychar, Speaking to the woman at the well, what happened? He led her to himself. Remember that? Where were the disciples? Grocery shopping in Sychar. They come back. They see him speaking to her. They're, they're thinking, what is he doing? No one talks to the Samaritans. We don't have any dealings with them. They don't say anything. The woman leaves. She leaves her water pot there, goes back, tells the town, come see a man that told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? She's so excited. you got to see him. The Messiah's here. Come on. In the meantime, Jesus says, uh, they said to Jesus, you want something to eat? Jesus said, I, I've got plenty to eat. I have meat to eat that you don't even know of. He said, Jesus said, guys, I sent you forth to reap. You're asking about this woman. She's doing your job. I sent you to reap. Say not ye there are four months and then come with harvest. I'm telling you there's a harvest field right here. And you missed it. So Jesus was always talking about harvest. Jesus was always talking about agriculture. And so Paul, I think, very aptly said, hey, Corinthians, you want to know who I am? I'm one of those people that listened to Jesus and said, I'm going to work in his field. That's what I'm going to do. Because there's much to be done. There are people to be reached. 
And you're part of them. And so I came and I did that job. And I led you to Christ. And I planted that seed. And that church got started. And then Apollos came later on. And he won some people to Christ that I couldn't have won to Christ. And he watered the seeds of the gospel that I had already planted. That they had heard from me. And, and then they got, it doesn't make a difference. It makes no difference. The point is, we're all working for Jesus. He sorts out who does what. God rewards us not according to our talent. He rewards us according to our labor. I think Paul emphasizes three things. Number one, we're different. And can I just say this? You're different among your pastoral staff, if you have one. So quit comparing yourselves among yourselves and measuring yourselves by yourselves. That's not wise. We've got a bunch of different churches represented, and we're different. Now let's quit comparing ourselves among ourselves and measuring ourselves by ourselves. We're different. We're different people with different talents, different abilities, different situations. We're different ages. We have different resources. We have different places uh, to minister. We have different buildings. We have different, uh, ta- uh, different skill sets. We're different. It's okay. And Paul said in this chat, hey, we're different. And not only were they different, he, he said, we're de-emphasized. Uh, the argument is wrong here. You're, you're talking about me or Apollo. So we're talking about Cephas. Or, no, it's a, the, the, you're missing the whole point. The whole point here is that the field belongs to God. That's the whole point. The point is this is God's work. The whole point is we don't do any of the work that actually helps people. We just do the work that facilitates the help for people. Matter of fact, without God doing his part, know what we are? We're hole diggers and, and mud makers. Because if you want to plant something that doesn't grow, all you did was dig a hole. If you want to water something that doesn't grow, all you did was make mud. Without God, it's ridiculous. We are hole diggers and mud makers. But Paul de-emphasizes us all together. We're different. We're de-emphasized. And then he says this, and we're dependent. We're dependent not only on God, we need God, for sure we need God to do His work, but we need each other. What's planting without watering? What's water without reaping? Well, it's a big field there of, 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 of apple trees, yeah, but no one ever picks an apple, what good is it? If no one ever waters a seed, what good is it? So Paul said, you've got it all wrong, Corinthians, we need each other. Quit fighting, quit passive aggressiving. Quit throwing rocks. Man, we need each other. Farmers, table waiters. Hey, celebrity pastor, we need an accurate view of our people. We need an accurate view of our preaching, what it ought to be. We need an accurate view of our position. But then lastly tonight, and I'm just going to mention this, we're already done. None of this would even be possible unless we had an accurate view of Christ. Yeah. Paul said, listen, the whole thing comes down to an accurate view of Christ. Would, would you look at it one last time? Look at verse number five. The Lord gave to every man. Verse six, God gave the increase. Verse seven, God that giveth the increase. Verse uh, eight, the implication, every man shall receive his own reward from God. We are labors together 
with God. We are God's field, God's husbandry. We are God's building according to the grace of God. Other foundation can no man lay than this laid, which is Jesus Christ. I know you not that ye are the temple of God. The spirit of God dwelleth in you. If any man devour the temple of God, look at verse number 21. Therefore let no man glory in men. All things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours. You're Christ's. Christ is God's. That's why in chapter 4, Paul says, so listen, I'm just a steward of the mysteries of Christ. It's all about him. And we get to tell people about him. Celebrity pastor? Oh, no, no. Simple servants who have seen Christ for who he is, who have seen their people for who they are, who see this book for what it can do, and see the wonderful privilege that God has given that I get to farm it, I get to serve it, I get to build it. Thank you, Jesus, for using me. Father, I thank you.